Hello and welcome to the Feeling Good Podcast. I am your host, Fabrice Nye, and joining me here in the Murrieta Studios is Dr. David Burns. Hi, David. Hi, Fabrice. Dr. David Burns has been a pioneer in the development of cognitive therapy, and he is the creator of the new team therapy. He is the author of Feeling Good, which has sold over 5 million copies in the United States and has been translated into over 20 languages. He is an emeritus adjunct clinical professor of psychiatry at the Stanford University School of Medicine. Welcome to episode 120 of the Feeling Good podcast. A couple months ago, we we did an episode uh, called uh, David's uh, 10 Favorite Techniques. Well, today we're going to do the 10 worst uh, errors. Maybe you should uh, do a series on the top 10 something. But so we're going to talk about the 10 worst errors that uh, therapists make in therapy, right? Yes, absolutely. And so we've talked about which one should go first, and we, we've gone back and forth, but um, we're going to throw them out in the order that we've uh, decided to present them. So the first one that was your choice, David, was the failure to measure. Uh, you may want to uh, explain a little bit what we mean by that. Right. The, uh, uh, traditionally, in medicine, doctors have, have used assessment instruments. If you try to treat people without the use of the thermometer or the chest x-ray or using blood test, you'd, you'd lose your, your medical license. But in the mental health field, people uh, traditionally have just treated patients through traditional talk therapy without any concept of measuring severity of symptoms or, or progress. And uh, that's really not, not a valid way, in my opinion, to, to, to treat people. Uh, we've developed and others have developed really wonderful, valid, accurate, brief tests for the severity of depression, anxiety, anger, suicidal urges, and just about anything you'd, you'd care to treat. And we measure, as you know, Fabrice, symptoms at the start and end of every therapy session, asking patients, how are you feeling at this moment? And that allows us to see for the first time exactly how much improvement the patient right. has made or failed to make in every single therapy session. And it's, it's really revolutionized now, the way we do therapy. Let me ask you a question. You, 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 know, you compare this to the way you know, medical doctors uh, measure their uh, patients' symptoms and you know, things like blood pressure and so on. Um, are you saying that uh, we should be conducting therapy the way medicine is conducted? No, I'm just saying that we, we, we should measure because uh, research indicates that therapist perceptions, and I can speak from personal experience, and I suspect you can too, but uh, I, the, that, that therapist perceptions of how pa- patients feel are, are just way, way off base, but the therapist doesn't know that because you're not measuring anything. So, so you maybe assume that, that you're having a great therapy session when the patient's perception of the session is is quite different, or you may be having what you think is, uh, I've had what I thought was a terrible therapy session, and then the patient rated the session as a fabulous uh, session, the best session ever. Uh, therapists just assume they know how patients are feeling, but if you test that with a with a little uh, easy to do uh, research test, you, you'll you'll find out it it just isn't it just isn't the case. Um, the the reason that we've been able to develop 
such fast-acting methods leading to really rapid recovery in team is because of the measurement. My, my patients have really taught me far more than what my supervisors or teachers have ever taught me because they know exactly how they're feeling and they can report at the end of the session, they go into the waiting room, they sit down, they take these same mood tests that they took in the waiting room before the session began. And then I can see, uh, they, they report, you know, has the depression changed? Have the suicidal urges changed? Has, has the anger changed? Has it gotten better? Has it gotten worse? They leave that uh, form for me. I can look at it and, and suddenly see when I'm being effective and, and when I'm, I'm not being effective. And, and there's just no way you can progress in any skill in life without getting this, this kind of feedback. Uh, it, sports makes it obvious the, uh, these fine NBA players become great because they practice over and over again. I think uh, Steph Curry and others typically shoot like a thousand three-point shots a day for practice, a thousand of them to get really good at it. But they can see every time they shoot if the ball goes through the hoop or not. And that's and then the brain automatically makes an adjustment. But in psychiatry and psychology, therapists are not making those adjustments because you can't accurately see when the right. ball goes through the hoop. So you're left to your own devices and your own intuitions, as it turns out, are simply not accurate. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, my uh, impression is that the vast majority of therapists uh, do not measure um, their patient's symptoms and how they're doing. Are you saying that... Uh, you know, the vast majority of therapists are uh, committing errors. Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm saying. If when I do workshops and I ask how many of you require your patients to take at least one psychological test every week as a minimum condition of being in treatment for you, typically maybe three hands out of 100 will go up at, at, at most. No, 95 to 99% of therapists in the United States and probably worldwide are not requiring measurement. Uh, I predict that within two or three years, the field will change. It will no longer be cons considered legal or ethical to treat patients without ongoing uh, assessment of, of, of symptoms. It, it's simply, uh, you, you cannot do good therapy with, with, without, without measurement. And, and again, the reason it's uh, this is so basic. I say it, it goes in one ear and out the other. But therapist perceptions are not are not accurate. Uh, you you can think a patient is improving when when they're not. You can think you've had a great session when it when it wasn't. It, it just it won't be the way you think. And when it comes to something like a suicide, uh, they the experts. Even the recent estimates are 10 to 20 percent of chronically depressed patients eventually commit suicide. Well, why do they commit suicide? Because it's because the doctor didn't know they were suicidal that that day. Your your perception. I've done research on on therapist accuracy and knowing how suicidal patients are feeling, and the accuracy is zero. So, right. yeah. without that information, you're, you're, yeah. you know, people, people will die. If you have the information, you can save the patient's life. Yeah. I suspect we're going to get a little bit of pushback on, on this topic. And we're going to get, to... we're going to get pushbacks on everything that I say. There's yeah. tremendous resistance among therapists. Yeah. I know. These I know. That's the frustrating thing about so, it. 
but I'm looking forward to the, to the comments we'll get on, on, on this one. And I would like to refer people back to one of our very first episodes, episode number two, which is called T equals testing, a boring topic with exciting implications. If uh, people want to hear all about testing, that's a good place to go. Shall we move on to the number two? Awesome. Thank you, Fabrice. Let's do. So number two is trying to help save, rescue, or reassure patients. Why is that a problem? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's another huge basic problem, and, and it, it's a problem on two different levels. Uh, when, when I'm training therapists or watching therapists who are trying to empathize, they, they'll frequently try to reassure someone. Uh, like I've had patients say, oh, I'm, I'm just a worthless human being. And then the, the therapist who, who is, you know, out of the goodness of their heart try, trying to be helpful to that person will say, oh, you're a good person and, and think of all your good qualities or something like that. And it's absolutely enraging to, to, to patients because it's it just patronizing. It, it's never helpful. It's giving the patient the, the message, you're, you're, you're such a dolt that uh, all you need to do is, you know, think of your good qualities and your depression will go away. And, that, and, and it just, it's, it's never works. The patients need us to go with them to the, to the gates of hell to, to tune into how horrible that, that they're feeling and to show an appreciation of their thoughts and feelings. And so that attempt to rescue and save and reassure causes failure at the empathy level. But also, it's even worse when it comes to, to methods to try to help patients because if you look at research on all of the schools of psychotherapy, none of them can outperform placebo in the treatment of depression. If you look at all of the NIMH outcome studies, they're barely better than placebo, if, if at all. And the reason is because everyone's trying to sell something to the patient, so selling prolonged exposure to veterans of PTSD or selling cognitive therapy or DBT to, to patients with, with depression. And when you try to sell something to people, they, they naturally re resist. It's the same with this podcast. You see, we're trying to sell, I'm trying to sell therapists on stop making all these errors and that, that'll cause pushback because people don't, don't like to be sold. That's uh, right. Thanks. They don't want to be helped. <laughs> That's right. Now, uh, Maybe we want to to be a little bit clearer about what what uh, we mean by help in this case. What what you're talking about, and correct me if I'm wrong, is we're we're trying to essentially contradict the the client, saying that no, they're not doing badly. They they're actually fine when they don't feel that way. That yeah. kind of help, but the help that you do propose in the team model is to first join the, the, the client in, the, in their misery, in a way, and, but then move from there uh, with their ag agreement after doing proper agenda setting using methods that will indeed help them. Yeah, the ultimate goal, of course, is, is to help the patient and to cause the depression to disappear as quickly as possible. And the reason we can often see this in such a short period of time is because the posture of the therapist in team therapy is not to, to try to persuade the patient to give up the depression or to give up the anxiety or to give up the, the anger, but, but rather to help the patient see 
what their depression, their shame, their anxiety, their hopelessness, their anger shows about them that's, that, that's beautiful and awesome. And, and we become the voice of resistance rather than the voice of change. And, yeah. and if you do that in a respectful way, in a compassionate way, suddenly, paradoxically, the patient lets go of the resistance and suddenly wants to change, and then recovery is just a stone's throw away. But this, this too, is, is such a profoundly deep thing, and, and therapists listening to this probably won't understand it. They won't get it. The, this compulsion to help people and to say, oh, boy, I've got my EMDR to help you, or I've got, I'm going to help you with mindfulness meditation, or I'm going to help you with cognitive th- therapy, that, 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 that is, so, or whatever, or my, my empathy skills are going to help you. And, and that push to help is, is almost bred into the, the therapist's genes, and it's the cause of all ther- all, I would say 95% at least uh, of therapeutic failure. Okay. So let's move on to number three. So number three is uh, what, uh, what's called reverse hypnosis, where, where the client actually hypnotizes the, uh, the therapist into uh, believing in their problem. Yes, that's right. And there's three forms of reverse hypnosis. This is where your patient puts you, the therapist, in, into a trance. And, and, uh, and it's very much of a hypnotic trance because the therapist starts believing things that are simply untrue. And there's a reverse uh, depressive hypnosis. Uh, that, that's where a very depressed patient persuades a therapist that he or she really is inferior, really is worthless, re- re- really is hopeless. And I can attest to that because whenever I treat a severely depressed patient for the first time, I, I find myself kind of buying into what they say. They're so persuasive about the fact that they're that they're they're hopeless. We had a woman who came to my clinic in Philadelphia uh, from England, and she had had every known antidepressant. And and I I, I probably mentioned this on a previous podcast, but it it probably makes the the, the point. Uh, and she'd had over, I think, 200 electroconvulsive therapies, and, and nothing had worked. And then she'd had a lobotomy, which is a horrible thing. They go in and, you know, cut out, make incisions in her brain we, tissue. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, we thought they don't, but it's actually used, it's still used a lot. And, and that didn't help. And then she had a second lobotomy, and that didn't help. And then she was saying, you know, I really am a hopeless case. And if you buy into that... The, uh, the treatment becomes, becomes doomed. The second form of reverse hypnosis is anxiety hypnosis, and, and the, the hypnosis here is a little different. Every anxious patient will have to use exposure to be cured. Now, exposure is not a treatment for anxiety. It's not a complete treatment, but it has to be a part of the treatment package. But every anxious patient will be terrified of exposure and will persuade the, pa- the therapist that it, it, this is too dangerous, I'm too fragile, something terrible is going to happen, I'll decompensate if I have to confront my worst fear. And 75% of, of therapists give in to that and don't use exposure with uh, anxious patients, and then once again, the therapy is doomed. Uh, if you if the therapist gets gives into that trance, uh, the third is relationship hypnosis, and this one is also incredibly persuasive. I would say, what would you say? 80, 90 percent of patients with relationship problems, Fabrice, 
believe it's the someone else's fault. Does that seem like a good estimate? Well, um, you may have different kinds of patients. I'd say more like uh, 60% in my practice. Oh, okay. Well, it's a high percentage at any rate. And I have a lot of people who blame themselves, you know. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, that's that. That that's huge too. Um, but the you know over half. Let's let's put it uh, conservatively. Uh, will try to convince the patient, the therapist, that they're a victim of their husband's insensitivity, for example, or their wife's insensitivity, or the the the, the bad behavior of, of of some of some other person, and. Therapists buy into that because we like the patient, we're compassionate, and we just start believing, yes, this person really is a victim. And if you buy into that, again, the, the treatment becomes doomed because then the person isn't going to pinpoint their own role in the problem and focus on, on changing himself or herself. Great. So I'm wrinkling my paper here. Any, are we done with this one or well, comment, Fabrice? Well, just one thing is... Um, how do you prevent from being hypnotized? Well, um, one thing that we do in team therapy, well, first, the therapist has to, has to be aware of it. I mean, these things take training to, 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 to grasp. But, but we ask, I ask someone who's involved in a conflict, what did the other person say? Write it down. What's one thing the other person said and exactly what you said next? And then it becomes really easy to see how the patient is actually causing the very problem that he or she is complaining about. Sure. For, for example, let's say you, you have someone who, who, who you say is hypercritical of you, always criticizing, criticizing, criticizing. So you say, well, put down one thing that your wife said or your husband said or your, your colleague said that was critical, and then write down exactly what you said next. And then what you'll see is that the patient responded to a criticism by arguing and try to insist the other person's wrong and the criticism is unfair, and, and that causes the other person to, to escalate because anytime you argue with someone, they, they will try harder to, to make their, their point. Uh, the, right. the way to put the lie to a criticism is to find truth in it in, in with a sense of, grace and warmth and respect for the other person. Right. And we've seen this when we've uh, looked at the five secrets. Yeah. But I was talking about the therapist's uh, hypnosis, reverse hypnosis. You know, the, how, how do you snap out of it? Well, there's a fantastic answer to that question, and Fabrice will now reveal it. Okay. Well, um, my answer to that is uh, first to be aware that it exists. And, and I think that this won't be complete news to, to many therapists, uh, but uh, also to, to realize that in order to uh, help somebody out of the hole, you have to be out of the hole yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And all of these things, and this is the point I was going to make at the end, change in all of these areas uh, requires a, a motivational change in, in the therapist. The, the, these things can be taught, but teaching therapist is not, is not enough. Uh, the, the therapist has to make a decision that he or she wants to change, wants to grow, wants to learn, wants to do things, things differently. Um, right. And, and therapists may not. They may like viewing the patient as, as a victim and siding with, with, with the patient. Patients love it. Therapists love it. That kind of collusion right. develops. 
which, which kind of uh, leads to the to the next one, number four, which is that uh, we um, believe that therapy must be slow and last a long time. Yeah, I was trained like that. Most therapists are trained like that. Most therapists want to want to believe that. For one thing, it puts money in your pocket. You don't have to keep getting new patients if you can hang on to your old ones for a long time. And it might sound cynical to, to say that, but I think that financial motives play a huge role in life, including uh, psychotherapy. But we, we've developed, as you know, Fabrice, new pretty high-speed treatments for, for, for depression and anxiety disorders. Relationship problems are not as fast. Habits and addictions are not as fast. But depression and anxiety, I usually see people recovering sometimes within the, the single therapy session. In fact, usually within a, a, a single therapy session, if it's a, if it's a two-hour session, I often, I almost always see a complete elimination of symptoms in one therapy session. But uh, yeah, mood, mood problems are are more tractable, and, uh, and yeah. Quite amazing what uh, what can be accomplished. Yeah, yeah, and anxiety often too. But uh, therapists, they they so believe in this model that the change takes a long time, but it but it doesn't. And 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 in addition, within that therapy session, it the change is nonlinear. It happens generally over a matter of three or four or five seconds. It's a whoosh like that. Suddenly the depression and the anxiety dis disappear. Now you've got to have skill to bring the patient to that level and to make that happen. That's what we try to teach in, in team therapy. But some therapists, this is so unbelievable to, to them that they don't even want to consider that, that it's real. I, I've mentioned in a previous podcast that I was speaking with a, a famous psychoanalyst from San Francisco and she bragged to me that the, most of her patients have been in therapy for more than 10 years. And in fact, almost all of them, she said, and only a few of them were just making a few little tiny baby steps. And she was so proud of how, you know, deep and prolonged the, 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 this therapy was. Uh, it, it just like uh, matter and anti-matter, like these are two, two completely different universes, the, what the, the, the universe I'm experiencing and the universe that I was trained in and, and the world that most therapists seem seem committed to. And the problem is if you think therapy is going to take a long time, uh, it will take a long time. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, but right. it won't be because it takes a long time for people to recover from depression and anxiety. Yeah. It'll be because you, the therapist, are forcing the patient not to recover. And it may have to do with the previous thing, the, the reverse hypnosis. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So number five. How many enemies do we have so far? Uh, we're accumulating them. I think that uh, you better uh, um, get a bodyguard. Yeah. <laughs> Number five, um, um, the error is believing that the purpose of therapy is to get in touch with your feelings. Aha. Isn't it? Yeah, this has been around for, for so long. Uh, and, um, you, you know, just... You have to express your feelings, and then somehow you're gonna gonna achieve mental health. And I was trained th this this way that all, what I was supposed to do in therapy, and you you may have been trained this way, Fabrice too, is just tell the patient, tell me more, and express your feelings, and get the anger out, get the depression out, and grieve and cry, and you know exp express all all of these feelings. And I've almost never seen that con converge 
on improvement. And yet therapists keep selling this idea. Popular books came out. I got one a couple of weeks ago, just a new spin on it. This woman has, you know, you can recover in 60 seconds or something like that by getting in touch with these three key emotions or or something or something like like that it's important to share feelings empathy is a crucial part of, of, of therapy but it does not lead to to recovery from anxiety disorders you, you know or, or alcohol addiction or binge eating or, or, or severe depression you can be the le- best listener in the world and patients can express all of these feelings but but the but the problem won't 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 disappear. You need powerful uh, powerful tools. Now there well, there let is. Me, let me ask you a question because um, yeah. I, yeah. it's not uncommon for me to encounter a client uh, where I'll say, "Well, how are you feeling?" Or you know, I'll kind of probe into their emotions. They'll they'll go. Mm. Nothing. I don't. Or I don't know. I mean, they they can't really tell. They can't really express what's going on, and um, that that seems to be a little bit of a of a showstopper sometimes. So. Um, yeah, that can be important. There's truth in all of these these things, and some people do need help expressing their feelings and becoming more genuine as a human being. And in my hidden emotion model, the the one big exception is is, is that a lot of anxiety results because of excessive niceness. People were afraid of their emotions, so you get angry with someone, you sweep it under the rug, and then it comes out indirectly, and you're having a panic attack or uh, OCD symptoms or a phobia or generalized anxiety. So that is one one case where I do help people to get in touch with a hidden suppressed emotion and express it. And when they do, the anxiety often disappears completely. And there are people who who do need help becoming more genuine and, and, and more open as a way of achieving greater intimacy and, and, and seeing the beauty and being vulnerable rather than having to try to impress people all the time. So, so there is a beauty and importance in, in uh, being aware of your feelings and share, sharing them. That's an important part, part of life, but it's, it's not going to be a cure. Uh, for uh, for most for emotional problems, it's not a panacea, as therapists have always believed, or so many therapists yeah. have, have believed. Okay, uh, so number six, um, you listed uh, confusing your own feelings for how the patient feels. Um, I wouldn't have picked that one as a, as an error, but uh, tell me why why that's uh, that's uh, something that's prevalent. Oh, well, because your own feelings are not caused by the patient's feelings. Your own feelings are caused by your thoughts. Sure. And and, and if your thoughts are, are distorted, as they usually will be, it's those distorted thoughts that are, that are creating the therapist's feelings, not the patient's feelings. You're, the, 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 ther- the therapist's feelings are just a tip off to how, how the therapist is, is thinking. But this is a huge error because I was reading an article on the psychoanalyst's view of empathy, and, and they defined empathy as the ther- psychoanalyst's feelings while in the presence of, of, of the patient, as if there's some magical connection between the two. But 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 they're they're not. And in fact, to come back to our answer to you know error number one, therapists not only are your feelings not tipping you off to how the patient feels, but if, if you do an experiment and ask psychoanalysts or any kind of therapist at any moment, how do you think this patient is feeling right now? 
and 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 you do it quantitatively like how depressed on a zero to a hundred is the patient feeling right now how suicidal right now how ashamed right now how anxious right now how angry right now and you have the patient fill out that same questionnaire how are you feeling right now how suicidal how angry how depressed how ashamed how anxious there will be almost no correlation between the therapist's view of the patient's feelings and the therapist the therapist and patient's view will, will not will not be meaningfully cor correlated and, and you're saying that's because the the therapist is uh, uh, relying on uh, his or her own emotions oh no that's just one of the a multitude of ways that therapists uh, get get confused okay. about how, how the patient is feeling yeah. but yeah. It, that's one of the many reasons that yeah. your the therapist's feelings w w are not a, are never almost never a tip off as to how, how the patient is feeling it's good to be attuned to your feelings especially if there's a conflict with you and the patient to bring that conflict to conscious awareness so you can discuss it but the only way to find out how a patient is feeling are, are, are two things number one to take the uh, the assessment instruments we've developed to take before and after each session so you can see how the patient is feeling at the beginning of the session, and you can see how the patient feels exactly when the, set, when the session is over, as well as during the empathy phase of the session, I'll typically ask a patient, uh, how am I doing on empathy? Am I tuning into how you're thinking and how you're feeling? Yeah. Have I created an atmosphere of, of acceptance and warmth? Would you give me an A, a B, yeah. a C? And then they'll they, they'll give you like a, a B plus or something, and then they'll tell you what what you're missing, or they might give you give you a C. You can get the information, but but you you have to first realize that your own intuitions about how your patient are feeling are almost never going to be accurate. Okay, number seven, uh, and I think this one is going to make some. Uh, old school therapists bristle a little bit. Do you think my answers would make people bristle? No, no, you're, you're so um, going with the flow. You know, you're very mainstream, David. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, number seven, believing therapists should never express their feelings. Most of us were trained this way. Were you trained that way to believe that you're not supposed to express your feelings? No, not particularly, but uh, I went to a rather uh, uh, alternative school, so. Yeah, and something you had something more more sensible. That's the way I was trained, and that's the way a lot of people are trained. Don't ever uh, let the patient know how you were feeling. All of my supervisors said that. Be a mirror. Just reflect back what what the patient is is saying, and and I always just kind of assumed that was some kind of gospel truth that was valid. And then once in my clinic in Philadelphia, we had this great therapist from uh, Ireland, Tony Bates. Uh, he got his PhD while he was at my, my clinic, and uh, he's a really nice guy and a really charismatic guy. And once I was watching him do a, a live therapy demo with a patient with severe borderline personality disorder who was super critical of him, and, and, and he, 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 he used an I feel statement. I, I'm feeling a little bit, you know, uh, badly right right now i feel i feel like i'm i'm failing you and maybe you're kind of angry with me right now and and, I, and you know i just i just feel like you know kind of ashamed and embarrassed cuz you know i like you and, and and yet i'm i'm clearly doing a bad job right now and it was so kind 
and at the same time, it was so powerful. It was so vulnerable, but it, it, it was very powerful. And I said, oh, wow, the, the, the I feel statements is a tremendous tool that therapists can, can use to become more human, to make the therapeutic relationship more, more human. Uh, and, and I began using it and including it in my five secrets of effective communication. Uh, but like any tool, it can be used skillfully or, or it can be abused. And so it's, it's not whether you express your feelings, but whether you do it in a, in a skillful and, and helpful manner. But I think a lot of traditional psychotherapy is, is just dogma. It's psychotic to me, a lot of it. It's so, so bizarre. Like this one seems to me to be especially bizarre that we should never express our feelings. Like we're trying to get our patients to open up, to share their feelings, to be more real, to be more vulnerable, all the while hiding our own. Now, if that isn't yeah. psychotic, you know, I, I don't know what is. Yeah, you know, you think that you should be a model for, you know, a healthy behavior. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. For All that. right, move on to number eight. Uh, believing that you are an expert and know the causes of things and why patients think, feel, or behave as they do. Yeah, this is this is super super basic. I think human beings, and therapists are no exception, have this desire to know the causes of things and to have beliefs that they, that they believe in. And, and some people think, you know, a wrong theory is, is better than, than none at all. But, I, but I'm, not in, I, I'm not of that point of view. Uh, I, I'm focused on helping people recover, not telling them, why they are the, the way they are. And, and my quick answer here is that none of the causes of any psychiatric disorder or psychological type of distress, distress, none of the causes are known. And all of the theories that are being thrown around can pretty much be proven to be wrong if you have a good, a good database. You know, we're we, we say that, oh, it's your, your childhood, or, or it's a chemical imbalance in your, in your brain, or, or it, 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 it's your genes. It's a genetic disorder that's causing you to be anxious or depressed. And none of these theories uh, has, has any real validity. I think EMDR even has some theory about the brain that the, the originator made up you know, that they can tell patients and here's how we're going to correct it with EMDR. And it's just, to my way of thinking, I mean, I've studied, I mean, I'm a psychiatrist, I'm a board certified neurologist and psychiatrist. And when I hear these things, they, they just seem uh, not nonsensical to, to my way of mm -hmm. thinking, just stuff that people make up. And I've freed, I've tested a lot of these theories and published the, you know, the results in, in top psychology journals and, and every theory I've tested has proven to be false. We proven, proved in 1975 that a, a depression cannot be due to a chemical imbalance in the brain, published it in the world's top psychology journal, and it was just ignored until recently. Now it's one of the most frequently quoted articles. But psychiatrists have been telling people it's a chemical imbalance in your brain for, for years. It's taught in medical schools. There's not a shred of evidence for it. There's something biological in depression, but we don't know what it is. There's something genetic, but we don't know what it is. There's probably environmental influences, but but we don't we don't know what what they are. So it kind of irritates me to be to be honest. Usually, I try to be doctor feeling good. Today, I'm I'm going to be doctor feeling nasty. 
and stuff. You're, you're going to be um, Scrooge. No, you could be <laughs> rather yeah. ornery. Yeah, I'm, 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 no, on Christmas Eve, I'm this the, is grouch, coming out on Christmas. the grouch that ruined Christmas exactly, yeah. and, and Hanukkah, New Year's. But um, I think these are fun and important things. And, and, and the fact is, is, is that all these theories that are being, you know, Adler had a theory and Jung had a theory and Freud had a theory. Freud said that depression was due to anger turned in, inwards. And as the Buddha said 2,500 years ago, what did he say? Freud is an ass. <laughs> <laughs> it's just untrue. It's just crap that Freud made up and it's it's not valid it's not verifiable it's just it's not true so I focus on uh, how to how to help people and the good news is whatever causes panic attacks or depression why some people are more prone to it than others we, we don't know but the great news is we got fabulous tools for helping you overcome these things and and now with right. the new uh, team therapy techniques often in an incredibly short period of time Okay, so I, I like the the last two that we're going to, to look at. So number nine here is confusing the process of therapy with a good outcome. Yeah, well, if you like this one, I want you to chime in because I love your thinking. But to, to me, the let, I was trained in the medical model. I don't practice psychotherapy in the medical model, but I do think if somebody comes to you with a problem like procrastination. I have a new way of treating procrastination as a very extremely high success rate in the sense of people who are procrastinating, suddenly within a day they're not procrastinating anymore and they're very being very productive. In fact, I use the new technique on myself and I've turned into a demon of productivity. But the is to deliver what people want. And if someone is coming for depression, then I want to deliver happiness to that person. But the problem is that therapists get so committed to their school of therapy that they they rate themselves on if they think they're they're doing the thing that they're they're supposed to do. And that's the way it was when I was a psychiatric resident. The my supervisor said the purpose of therapy is to express emotion. And and so I got real good at doing doing that, and my supervisors kept saying, Oh, you're doing great work, your patient just cry and get angry all session. But it never converged on recovery. I never saw patients recover when I was a psychiatric resident. And my supervisors didn't even seem to care. They, they said, it's all, no, no, you have to be getting this anger out, getting the patient's anger out. Well, what's the point in doing that if, if the patient is still depressed or still has obsessive compulsive disorder or still drinking it? like an alcoholic or, 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 or whatever. Yeah. Hey, what, what are your thoughts about well, this? My, my thoughts are that, uh, I mean, I, I, I concur with you. Um, sometimes you'll hear therapists, you know, talking in consultation or after a session saying, well, that was a good session. And, um, but it's not clear what they mean by it was a good session. And often what they mean is like, well, you know, we, we had a lot of exchanges and the, the client discovered that, you know, he had been abused when he was a child. And then we, he finally opened up about his mother and, and yeah. we had the, such a cathartic exchange. And it was like, wow, you know, so they're, they're um, feeding off the, the drama that happened in the therapy session. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean that it was not productive, but that's what they focus on. And, uh, but the, 
the, the client may have left the therapy session thinking, gee, I'm just exhausted after this. Uh, I don't know if I want to go back to this guy. Yeah, uh, you said it better than I did, Fabrice. I love, I love what you're saying. And it's, it's, it's arrogant, it's narcissistic. It's uh, just, to me, incredibly, incredibly offensive. When people come and they're suffering, they're coming for relief. And we've got tools now that can provide relief. Tremendous transformation of negative feelings in, into joy, alienation into isolation, uh, you know, procrastination getting turned into productivity. People want their lives lives to, to change, and this idea that they're coming to join our cult and right. do our thing, it's yeah. it just, it just very, uh, it's kind of enraging to me, really. Yeah. So let's look at number 10. And uh, number 10 is believing that insight will lead to change. Now, I've had conversation with people about this, and they will just not get off that dime. No, it's like, no, if, it's very helpful to understand what made you be this way. You know, it's very good to understand that, uh, no, you're not responsible for your, you know, mother's uh, depression. And okay, good. But uh, it's not sufficient. Right. I'd say sometimes it's necessary because um, you, you can run on rather irrational concepts and worldview. Oh, yeah. But, um, but it's not enough. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I have, I've had one patient, I've had tens of thousands of therapy sessions, and I love doing therapy. I've always loved it, and the older I get, the more addicted I get to it. It's, it's just about my favorite thing in the world to be treating someone because I just love to see people recover, and I just see it all the time. And it's the greatest joy in the world for me. I, I had it multiple times in the past week alone. I treated several people in conferences, and they all had a total blow away of their symptoms in one session. They went from sobbing to joy and laughter, and it, lift, it lifted my heart. But it takes specific techniques to make that happen. The only patient I ever had where insight led to change was a woman that uh, I was doing a uh, – she was a graduate student, and, and I, she was, felt trapped in relationships, and uh, she, she kept breaking up with her, with her partners because she, she'd start to develop a relationship with someone, and then all of a sudden, she'd get all burned out and couldn't stand the person anymore and break up and go on to someone else. And when we did the interpersonal downward arrow, she discovered what I thought was obvious, but it, and she was a brilliant person, but it was a shock and a surprise to her that in relationships, she, she takes the submissive role and she believes she always has to serve the other person. She, she sees love as a form of bondage where you have to be earning love by giving, giving, giving. And of course, then her partners would take, 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 and she, she'd get burned out. And when we did the interpersonal downward arrow to, to reveal this pattern to her, she absolutely loved it and said that that changed her life. The insight alone of what she was doing in intimate relationships transformed her relationships, trans, transformed her mood. Right. So it can happen. Yeah. 
that's the only one in my whole career where insight alone led, led, led to change. Like you can do the downward arrow and someone finds out that they're perfectionistic. Okay, now you know you're perfectionistic, but you're still feeling depressed and worthless. How are we going to change that perfectionism? How are we going to yeah. change your life? That that's That's what's really cool about team yeah. therapy. I've got 50... Well, I've been training people, like when you were in the Tuesday group, 50 Ways to Untwist Your Thinking. In my new book, Feeling Great, I have 51 more new methods. So we've got 101 ways to change the way you think, feel, and behave. And boy, am I excited to to share that with people. Yeah, and to, yeah. can't to, wait for it to come out. Yeah. So the last question that I have, Fabrice, yeah. is this podcast. Um, Two things. Number one, will it do any good? Will therapists who listen, will it convince them to change their ways? My hunch is probably, probably not. not. No. <laughs> yeah. It's a motivational thing. and It's a good thing this is coming out uh, the day before Christmas. Uh, maybe some people won't, won't, will miss this episode and we yeah. won't have too many irate comments. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're not irate very often, so we can be irate and obnoxious yeah. today for a change. But also, some of you listeners, you may be therapists and you may be patients and you may be the general public. Maybe you can tell us what are some of the errors that you've observed in therapists that we yeah. haven't listed. And, and I've got another five or eight of these errors that therapists make. And maybe if people like this, which seems unlikely, but if people like this podcast in some future point, we can have another one on, you know, the next 10 worst errors therapists make. And maybe we can include some of some of your errors too, because yeah. I know if you're a patient, I'll bet you've seen a lot of therapeutic errors. Right, exactly. And, uh, and of course, as always, we invite people to give us feedback. Uh, we, we really feed off people's questions because that gives us uh, ideas for new topics. And so please, uh, you know, uh, write in the show notes, you know, at feelinggood.com. And um, also, um, you were going to say something, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, tell, tell your friends you've been helping us. And I think this month we're going to hit the close to 60,000 downloads again. I was just yeah. checking this morning, Fabrice. But tell your friends, help, help us spread the word about our podcast because we're trying to build our audience as, as much as, as possible. I, I was at the Burlingame conference. I was telling you last week, the brief therapy conference, Fabrice, and I can't tell you how many people came up and said, oh, I love your podcast. And and they, they, they help me or they're helping my patients or they, they help me recover from depression. And I people are saying, oh, that Fabrice is a, a, a giant. He's such a neat person. And you guys have such great chemistry. Being You're making this up. You. Huh? You're making this up. No, no, this is true. You've got tons of tons of fans, and also, if you look at the show notes, you'll see that if you're in, I think Fabrice, you can treat people all around the world through the internet now. Can't you? Is that true, Fabrice? Yeah, I I do do that. Uh, you know, I've uh, I've worked recently with somebody from the, the UK. It's uh, it's kind of fun, you know, see somebody who's in different time zone like that. So if someone from India or something wants Fabrice, uh, Fabrice as a shrink, who, who, where do they find you, Fabrice? Well, well, we'll leave my email address in the show notes and people can contact me that way. Okay. All right. And I want to, uh, in advance, apologize to the people who are, you know, really audiophiles and pay attention to sound quality. This may not be the best. We're not uh, in the same room. We're recording this over the internet. 
we promise to be working in the future about getting better equipment so that this won't be a problem anymore. But uh, if uh, you know there's a slightly imperfect sound, please uh, bear with us. Okay. Thanks, Fabrice. And for those of you who celebrate, uh, Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy New Year, Happy whatever. All right. Thank you, David. This has been another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast. For more information, visit Dr. Burns' website at feelinggood.com where you will find the show notes for this podcast under the blog page and where you can leave your comments and questions. The website has an abundance of resources for therapists as well as non-therapists, including books, workshops, a list of online training groups around the world, and much more. Theme music is Gypsy Jazz in Paris, 1935, composed and performed by Brett Van Donzel. I am your host, Fabrice Nye, and I invite you to join us next time for another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast.